Our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Kings uh, chapter 19, one of the great narrative portions of the scripture. So I ask you to please turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. We'll be reading the entire chapter, and I'll ask you to please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we might see wonderful truth out of your word this morning. Amen. Hear the word of the Lord. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the God of For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And even, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elijah, the son of Saphat and of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazel shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Saphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Lord, please give us great wisdom and great insight as we look at this passage of this great relationship between Elijah and Elisha and may you apply it richly to our lives. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. 
Please be seated. One of the things that is so wonderful about our Lord is his brilliance and his wisdom, that there is no threat that has been ever concocted against us that he does not in some way, shape, or form explain to us how to deal with that threat in the Word of God. And that is exactly what happens here in this story of Elijah before he learns about Elisha uh, being a part of God's destiny for him and his ministry. Elijah, we look at way back in chapter 17, we see this, this crisis stages that God sends the world through. And as we look at Elijah, who was God's point man, and how he is going to serve God's people during this famine, which was happening in the land, the famine was caused because there was a drought, three and a half years, so no rain occurred. So this massive famine, and so Elijah was the man who was appointed to guide the people through this tragedy. So when you think of the threats that we face from 9-11 to even the pandemic right now, you'll see that this, this pattern applies to all of these situations. As God is wiser than our threats, you'll see that in Christ's shepherding here in 1 Kings 17, 18, and 19, Early on in the first chapter of 1 Kings 17, Elijah is prepared by God for this national disaster of the drought that is coming. And then you'll see in early in chapter 17, Christ's decisions being made. Elijah will make the decision that everything he do will be based upon the word of God, which will serve him well. Then you'll see a crisis response a little later in chapter 17. Obviously, because there was a, a drought and no rain, there would be a famine, which means people would be going hungry. So God had wisely Elijah attend to the needs of a widow, serving as an example to all of Israel uh, to serve those who are in need. But then there will be a crisis reaction. There's always a crisis within a crisis. In fact, sometimes the crisis within the crisis is much harder to deal with than the crisis itself. And for Elijah, he had a crisis within the crisis. He comes to help this widow. He comes to give her and her son food, but then her son unexpectedly dies. And so Elijah is put into crisis reaction mode, and he prays to the Lord he brings this to the Lord's attention, and the Lord miraculously uh, overcomes uh, this sickness and brings the child back to life. And then you see at the end, the crisis is overcome. Elijah in chapter 18 will defeat 450 prophets of Baal. He will take on the world. He will show the glory of God. The rain will start to come. It looks like everything is over, but it's not. Because after all of that, he'll go into a crisis crash. You'll see a ministry burnout for Elijah. Because it says here, starting in chapter 19, that Jezebel, this wicked queen, was out to kill him. And so Elijah became scared. It said he was afraid and he arose and he ran for his life. And you'll see this crisis crash. What's really instructing is how God will deal with the burnout that Elijah will feel and Elijah will face. And we will see through the ministry of Elisha that there will be this crisis catalyst relaunch. We will see that ministry will go on even though, even though 
uh, Elijah has crashed. Now, Elijah, according to the New Testament, is just like us. His nature is just like us. So we're like Elijah, and Elijah is like us. And so this story is really intended to help all of us deal with the crises in our life. Let's look a little bit at the crisis crash of Elijah for a moment. Elijah pretty much suffered from what we would call ministry burnout, which is defined as three things coalescing uh, in uh, someone's life. The first one is just sheer exhaustion. And you see in the passage how exhausted Elijah was. Also, there's a great cynicism that develops in the person. And you see cynicism, he said it's enough. He says that he wanted his life to be taken. But you also see a frustration in there because he is not able to achieve the things that he thought God wanted him to achieve. He was looking for revival. He thought after he defeated the Baal prophets, after the rain came, that everything would be much better and there would be a great revival. But he was sorely disappointed because the wicked queen still was trying to take his life and the persecution that he was hoping was ended didn't end at all. And so he crashes. But there's always something in my experience that's underneath that crisis burnout that's really driving this. And it's that word frustration, which is a nice way of saying anger. There's often an anger against God. There's an anger against what is happening. And that anger gets the better of us. Uh, Jim Berg, who wrote a book on discipleship, talks about the, the, four, the cycle of the four pathways of anger and for every Christian to be watching for that in their life. The first thing that comes with anger, you'll see this in Elijah's life, is displeasure. He is displeased with something. And because he is displeased with something, he can think of nothing else. And he was displeased that he was still going to be persecuted, uh, even though these great things had happened. And once you get displeased, then you begin to do the next D, which is you demand things to change. And so Elijah will start to demand things. In this case, he says, it's enough. It's enough, God. And he demands that God take his life. Not only do you demand things, but you move on to that in your anger to you're willing, you're wi- you're willing to destroy things. And in this case, Elijah was willing to destroy the ministry that he had with God Most High, the ministry that he had with Israel and all the world. In fact, once he meets Elisha, he will have six to seven years of more wonderful ministry, but he was willing to destroy all that because of his anger. And the last part of the uh, getting angry is there becomes a distortion uh, in your anger. And Elijah said that he was the only one, he was the only prophet left. But if you read the story, Elijah knew there was other prophets. In fact, God reminds him that there are 7,000 people that he has reserved for himself, that that was a distortion due to his anger. And so Elijah, instead of going to the God Almighty to pray to him, which he was really good at, he decided that it was better to run and to hide, and uh, he runs, and so we find Elijah in this place. Now, what's interesting that is if we can critique Elijah for running and fearing and uh, not coming to God in prayer, what's interesting is how God will deal with Elijah now. God will shepherd Elijah with a wisdom and a kindness 
that is unbelievable because even though Elijah ran from his fear, which we should not do, Elijah nonetheless had a lot of traumas in his life. And those traumas in his life did cause him harm. And so God is going to shepherd Elijah through his traumas. And so what's interesting here is this is one of the definitions we have of shepherding here at Oak Mountain. Shepherding is ministering to the whole person physically, emotionally, spiritually, and relationally so that they are equipped to follow God's call for their lives. Where do we get that definition of shepherding? From this passage right here because look at how God will shepherd the burnt out Elijah. The first thing he will do is he will send the angel to him and will minister to Elijah's physical needs. Make sure he gets sleep. Make sure he gets food and water. Make sure that he gets help, physical help. God is very much merciful and concerned for every detail of our life. But then God will also help Elijah with his emotional life to bring his emotional life back to health. And how did he do that? By sending him to Mount Horeb. Mount Horeb, the other name for Mount Horeb in the Bible, is Mount Sinai. And it's the place where, as you all know, Moses received the Ten Commandments. And in this passage, it says that Elijah went to a cave. In Hebrew, it actually says the cave, most likely the cave that Moses was in. And so God had him retrace the providential historical steps of Moses. And what was he doing there? He was getting the good feelings, the good emotions of Elijah to come back to life. Think about a soldier who's in a war and they are exhausted from the battle, but they look up and they see the flag still waving and they realize who they're fighting for and what they're fighting for. And they get an emotional burst of energy. That's how that would have affected Elijah. But also spiritually, God will talk with Elijah. It won't be in the whirlwind, it won't be in the earthquake, it won't be in the fire, but it will be in the still, small voice of God that he will talk to him in that quiet whisper and say, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he will minister to Elijah by speaking to him. And how does God be so gracious to us in speaking to us by his word as well? And then, as we will learn out in just a minute, he will also minister to Elijah relationally. Elijah actually left his servant behind. He was all alone. He must have felt incredibly isolated. And the solution for that is God was going to get him a ministry partner whose name was Elisha. And he was going to give them both this incredible partnership. Uh, What was amazing is is that according to Hebrew um, uh, history... Elijah performed eight miracles, which is phenomenal. But Elisha, his mentee, will perform 16 miracles. It'll just show that Elisha in some ways goes on to outdo uh, Elijah. But it shows that God was equipping them both to follow God's call uh, for their lives. And so uh, looking at this passage, uh, it gives us, Uh, an incredible amount of insight into the kindness and the gentleness of God, how he shepherds us through our traumas. He doesn't critique Elijah here at all. He simply tries to help him move to the place that God is calling him uh, to be. And then we come to the third uh, point of our message this morning, which 
for me is really the most exciting point, and that is, that is that God gets us back on track, and that's what he was doing for Elijah. Elijah was acting very similar to another prophet that we all know so well, the prophet Jonah. You know, as you remember, Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, and he didn't want to go to Nineveh, so he went the opposite direction, and God brought him back to Nineveh. What's very interesting that God, when he tells Elijah to go find Elisha, he tells Elijah to find two other men too, but he says something different when he tells God to go find Elisha. He gives to Elijah Elisha's address because when it says in verse 16, Elisha the son of Saphat of Abel Mehola, he was giving him his address. He was telling him exactly where Elijah would be. And so uh, using a uh, map here, I'd like to kind of share with you uh, this uh, new story of Jonah, if you will, that you may not be familiar with. But this all began in Jezreel where uh, Jezebel wanted to kill Elijah. And he runs all the way to Mount Sinai uh, to get away. He's quite far away. And God will send him right back to Abel Meholah right back to where he started in the first place because hiding from our enemies isn't the safest place to be. It's always being in the center of God's will is the safest place to be. And that was certainly true for Elijah, and that is certainly true uh, for us. But in all of this, God still speaks to us in the same way in that still small voice. God today uh, doesn't usually do flamboyant things to get our attention. He, he simply gives us his word, maybe gives us a grandmother or a grandfather, or maybe gives us an aunt or an uncle or a best friend or a neighbor or a church member or somebody who brings the word of God to us. You know, one of the great passages of the gospel is in Isaiah 53, verse 6. Where Isaiah said, we have all, we are all like sheep and we have gone astray, which is a general claim. And then he says specifically, every one of us, each one of us to our own way, we have gone. And what is God's answer to that? What is God's answer to such rebellion? To lay on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Jesus becomes that great substitute. Jesus becomes the great Savior who takes the punishment we deserve so that we might experience eternal life, which we don't deserve to be that happy with God forever, but we will be because of God's grace and God's love for us. And so as we look at this uh, passage with uh, Elisha uh, being uh, given uh, to Elijah, let's look at a couple of things that God says to Elijah. In verse 13 he says, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his cloak his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. He knew that he was going to see God, so he was protecting himself. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? God simply asked him a question, the same question that he asked him before. Elijah gave the same answer, by the way, that he gave before. God didn't ask Elijah, What's the problem? God asked Elijah, Why are you here? This is not the ministry place that I have for you. Why are you here? You're supposed to be with Elisha. You're supposed to be doing the things that I have called you to do. And so he 
challenges Elijah with that question. And notice Elijah, as I said, says the exact same thing that he normally said. That's one of the signs that we know that we're angry. When we're we're, we're ruminating. We're constantly thinking how mad we are about a situation. And we say the same things to people Monday that we'll say to them on Tuesday, that we'll say to them on Wednesday, that we'll say to them on Thursday. Because all we can do is ruminate about the same thing that we're angry about. That's always a sign that we've got. To do what Elijah did, get quiet before the Lord. Go to a place that is just between you and the Lord and hear his still, small voice asking you, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? Is this what I have called you to do? We know that God has told us to go, just like this passage told Elijah to go. God has told us to go and do a lot of things. He told us to go and do likewise when it, turned, when it comes to loving people like the Good Samaritan loved the victim on the road to Jericho. He tells us to go into the world to make disciples of all nations. He tells us wonderfully in Scripture to go in peace, but while we're going in peace, to serve the Lord. He tells us what to do. And so often when we are angry, we get paralyzed and we recognize that we're not doing the basic things that God has called us to do for ministry here upon this earth. So in verse 15, it says, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way. The actual Hebrew says, Return to your way. That is describing that God had a particular path, a particular path for Elijah to walk in this earth, and he's telling him to get back on that path. One of the great things is Jesus, and John 15, looks at his disciples, and he just becomes what I call the commander-in-chief of the universe. He just cuts through everything. It's a verse that just always makes me snap up in, in uh, absolute respect for Jesus. He says to his disciples, you did not choose me. This is not under your control, but I chose you. And I chose you as Lord God Almighty to bear fruit. You are going to bear fruit. And then he says, and that fruit will last. That will stand the test of eternity. That fruit will last. That's one of the most encouraging commandments and promises in Scripture to me because it's telling me for a fact that there is much more ministry for me and you and us to do in the name of Jesus and then he tells them where to find Elijah. And so he, he goes there and he finds Elijah in verse 19. And he passes by him and he casts his cloak on him. That would be the equivalent of ordaining Elisha to the ministry. He was showing that Elisha is now a part of the prophetic ministry of the prophets of the Old Testament. And so this would have, if you will, would have been Elisha's ordination day. And he asked to go back and to to celebrate with his family, to tell him goodbye, to kiss his mom and dad. And notice what he does. The the place that he lives, Abel Meholah, the address that God gave Elijah, Abel Meholah means dancing meadows. It was describing a place of celebration, a place of love and joy. That's where Elijah was sent. And Exactly true to form, Elisha, who was one who was born in those meadows, 
will have a great celebration with his loved ones, with his neighbors. And you've got to remember, they were just coming out of a drought. They were just coming out of a famine. So to be able to eat meat would have been a huge luxury for them. This is a really a wonderful feast that Elisha gave to his, his family and friends. But notice what he does. He takes his yokes, his oxen yokes, and he's going to burn them at that feast to show that he is not going back to that part of his life, but he is moving on to a new chapter in his life. That new chapter was to serve God under the ministry of Elijah the great prophet. And so uh, it's, it's a remarkable and wonderful story. What's really cool, though, is what says here in the last part of the verse, and then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him, which brings us all uh, to full circle. You know, Elijah started out in verse 3 saying what? I'm going to run for my life. And then in verse 4, he comes to such the low point in his life that he says, God, take my life. But in verse 19, when God tells him the address to Elisha's house, he departs quickly to get to Elisha. And then at the end here, we see that Elisha and Elijah are running to do ministry together, to live life together. You see this incredible uh, cycle occurring where we go from fear to absolute exhaustion to absolute exhilaration because he is getting the opportunity, the unbelievable privilege of doing ministry now with Elisha. And like I said, that's going to be another six years of fruitful ministry uh, for both of them as they partner with each other uh, in that ministry. I don't know about you, but when I see this, I recognize that in my own life, I struggle with being the first Elijah of this passage where I'm fearful and I want to run and I just want to hide and I don't want to do it anymore. It's all enough. But it's that second Elijah, that 2.0, where he gets excited about his ministry of pouring into Elisha and the possibilities that God is going to do there. That is when I too begin to get excited when I think of the Elishas that are in my life. The American Association of Christian Counselors has a great statement. I wish, I wish we all would, would embrace it. But they say that every young person who is growing up into today's world, growing up with all the struggles that the modern world has, needs to have five Christian adults who are absolutely excited and crazy about that young person and wants to see the absolute best in terms of God's plan for their life occur. To have five adults, every one of us here who are in that adult category, we've got to recognize that we're the Elijah of this passage. And it's our call right now to recognize that we have a number of Elishas that we've got to pour into and encourage. And if life has been that hard for us as Elijah, I mean, life was hard for Elijah, no question about it. But he had nobody encouraging him. He was all alone. How much better would it have been for them to be people around him to encourage him? 
Same for the people that we are called to minister to, the Elishas in our lives. It is up to us to make sure that we encourage them and we equip them and we empower them to live the life that God is calling them to live. Now, everybody has different things that get them up in the morning. I'm going to show you a picture of what gets me up in the morning. That little man right there, that's my first grandson. And that's my only grandson right now. But we like this uh, little mountaintop because I describe this as the place where you can see it all. You can see civilization. You can see the mountains. It's just a beautiful part of God's creation. But you see the little man, he's only one, pointing out to something out there. I don't know what. Probably sees a bird. And his dad pointing. There is just so many possibilities. And that's what's the exciting thing about God's Word. You know, we're Presbyterians and we like to talk about predestination. There's one passage that talks about God preparing for us to do works beforehand in Ephesians 2.10. And it tells us that we are God's workmanship, created to do good works. God has ordained it already. Just like Jesus says, you're going to bear fruit. And that fruit is going to last. And I can't wait to see as many days as God gives me to see what fruit might come. But that's true for all of us. We all have many Elishas in our life that it is our call to encourage them, as I said, to equip them and to empower them. You know, I like to tell the story about my uh, wife's uh, conditional love. She, uh, she used to send me uh, love letters. I know it's, it's hard to believe that anybody would love me that way, but my wife does love me. And she would send me love letters, and she'd say, you are my precious. I felt so good about that. I am her precious. And then I got demoted. We had three children, and they became her precious. But you know, kids, they're really cute when they're young. It's like false advertising. You know, they're really cute. <laughs> But then they become kids, and you go, I don't know if they're so precious after all. So we've had two bearded collies. We love bearded collies, and they're the sweetest dogs in the world, and they became her precious. They are the great dogs. But you know about bearded collies, or any dog, there is some high maintenance going on there. So one one year I brought my wife um, a really nice blanket. It's a really soft blanket for Christmas. And that became her precious. She'd come home from a hard day at work. Where's my precious? No, it wasn't me. It wasn't the kids. It wasn't the dog. It was that blanket. I'm going to take a nap. Well, today you know exactly what my wife's precious is. Her grandson. Friends, there are so many precious people that we have the privilege to minister to in the name of Jesus Christ. I know it's tough. I know it's hard. But if we keep our eyes there, we'll never experience, nor will we never get excited about all those Elishas out there. That God has put you on this earth and put me on this earth to minister the love of Jesus to. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this passage, and I thank you for its reminder that every one of us serve a wonderful place in your kingdom. And you are the king. And so we bow and give you all the glory. And thank you for 
all the good that you've given to us. In Jesus' precious and wonderful name, amen. I ask you to please stand for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.